1: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails podcast. My name is Zach Tromley, and I am your host as usual. Welcome to the second installment of WDF Asks, where we are looking at the question... Wouldn't it just be better to hand your lives over to Bismarck? Oh no, sorry, that's the next one. I'm just kidding. We are, of course, looking at the question of is Westphalia overrated? And by that we mean the piece of Westphalia, in case you didn't know. So don't run away if you're afraid of that kind of discussion. Just listen to the introduction and the first episode and you'll see it's really not that scary and actually it's quite interesting. As you guys probably know already, but here I am to remind you once again, When Diplomacy Fails is a member of the Agora Podcast Network. The Agora Podcast Network has loads of podcasts like When Diplomacy Fails that are hosted by intelligent, smart, sophisticated, and beautiful people just like me. Every month, Agora promotes a specific podcast within its grouping, and we try to send as many downloads their way as possible as a kind of favour to them. This month, we are promoting The History of Islam, a podcast by Elias Belhadad. Apologies if I pronounced that wrong, but I can't even pronounce the most important river in the United Kingdom right, so there you go. Okay, so that out of the way, I would recommend you guys obviously check out Agora Podcast Network and History of Islam, etc, etc, but I'm really excited to start this episode and hopefully you guys are too, so let's do this. Welcome to WDF Asks, Is Westphalia Overrated? Part 2. Last time we set the scene, explained exactly what changed in Europe in practical terms after the Peace of Westphalia and what the treaties provided for. We examined in particular the religious tolerance, the increase in state sovereignty, the balance of power and the end of supreme authority which the papacy and Holy Roman Emperor wielded. If you need a recap, Today we will look at things from the other point of view, since the last episode can be seen as a kind of apology in favour of the Peace of Westphalia's status as an all-important treaty. Yes, that's right. This episode could be termed the juicy one, since it is here that I plan to argue against the privileged place that the Peace of Westphalia holds in the hearts of many historians, Let's see how we get on, as I now take you to the hallowed halls of debate, where When Diplomacy Fails asks, again, is Westphalia overrated? A reminder of what we're doing at WDF asks: We ask again whether Westphalia is overrated. In other words, whether it deserves its position in the historical hall of fame next to other significant peacemaking experiences like the Congress of Vienna, eighteen fifteen, or the Treaty of Versailles, nineteen nineteen. Last time we ran through the reasons why Westphalia wasn't overrated and looked at the opinions of the Westphalians, as we have deemed them, without actually offending people that live there. Today we look at the anti-Westphalians. To clarify, this does not mean people who are against humans living in that portion of Germany, but people instead who are of the opinion that the peace of Westphalia is not all that, and that historians have really been overblowing its importance for many centuries. We will not be spending as long as last time clarifying what the two terms mean, because life is too short, you'll be overjoyed to know. Instead, we'll just be jumping right into this. Let's begin. Westphalians have had their way for centuries. In 1998, in recognition of the 350th anniversary of the Peace of Westphalia, historians from all walks of life were trotted out to explain, essentially, what the Peace of Westphalia means to them. By contrast, the discipline of international relations almost totally ignored the anniversary Which, when you think about it, is weird, since international relations scholars like to tell us that it was at Westphalia, in 1648, that our modern concept of state sovereignty, as well as international law and concepts like the balance of power, were first born, or at least properly realized. All of these births were examined in the last episode, and they apparently came forth under the immense weight of the evidence put forward by Leo Groves in 1948, fifty years earlier. Grose contended, as we saw, that everything we conceive to be modern about how states work and their rights on the world stage was born at the Peace of Westphalia. Grose was the first to cement such ideas in a paper, and it has come to be seen as one of the most influential papers on the topic, gluing together history and international relations, and helping all involved to agree on the importance of what was agreed by European statesmen in 1648. Nowadays, rather than question grows as ideas, such ideas are presented as fact, and rather than critiques of putting the piece of Westphalia on a pedestal, we're instead treated to troubling questions such as, "Is the post-Westphalian system decaying, or is Westphalian sovereignty on the decline?" These questions, apparently loaded with significance and suggesting that the end of an era is at hand, are an actual fact incredibly misleading. The era isn't ending, after all, because anti-Westphalians tell us that if we look closely into what the peace of Westphalia was and what it actually achieved in Europe, a new era never began after 1648 in the first place. The common narrative of the Thirty Years' War has it that two parties, the Habsburgs with their allies and the triple alliance of Sweden, France and the Dutch, fought one another for many years. By the end of it, Habsburg pretensions to dominance in Europe and the essential takeover of the Holy Roman Empire itself had been thwarted, much to the relief of the rest of Europe. The Habsburg military exhaustion meant that Ferdinand II and his son Ferdinand III would never be able to implement their vision of a centralised, catholic Habsburg state drawing on all the German states while Spanish decline meant in turn that the Bourbon French monarchy would take its place atop Europe's food chain. The Dutch would be recognised as independent, as would Portugal, in time, and the balance of power in Italy would also switch to the French, since they could project their power most effectively there. Many narratives go further than simple military exhaustion and defeat, though. Westphalians regularly present the Peace of Westphalia as the triumph of good over evil, As the end of Habsburg designs on taking over Europe, and the reorientation of Habsburg policy towards more honourable ventures, like stopping the Ottomans. Westphalians sometimes even go as far as saying that the peace ushered in a new era of freedom in religious and stately terms, and that the Habsburgs could never threaten those qualities again. This perspective depends on one point above all, and in fact, much of the Westphalians' support for the peace holding such monumental importance revolves around the historical narrative being geared towards the idea that the Habsburgs were power-hungry, megalomaniacal warlords determined to expand their power and realise their ambitions of European religious and stately domination, and that the only thing that stopped them was the peace of Westphalia, brought about by the do-good alliance of Sweden, France and the Dutch. Quotes showing the prevalence of this view in international relations are super easy to find. Historian David Butcher states that the settlement was designed to undermine the hegemonic aspirations of the Habsburgs. His colleague, Hedley Bull, says that it marked the end of Habsburg pretensions to universal monarchy. According to Graham Evans and Geoffrey Newnham, authors of Dictionary of World Politics, the settlement marked the culmination of the anti-hegemonic struggle against the Habsburg aspirations for a supranational empire. For one distinguished academic, now retired but still finding time to be a former editor of the International Studies Quarterly, co-editor of the Canadian Journal of Political Science, and a former president of both the Canadian Political Science Association and the International Studies Association, a Dr. Cal Holstey, the war was mainly fought over religious toleration and the hegemonic ambitions of the Habsburg family complex. According to Michael Sheehan, author of The Balance of Power, History and Theory, The Peace of Westphalia, refuted the aspirations of the papacy and the Holy Roman Empire to create a single Christian imperium. So after hearing all that, can we realistically argue against what appears to be such a consensus regarding the peace of Westphalia? Can we really challenge the word of these Westphalians? Anti-Westphalians insist that yes, we can, and we shouldn't be afraid to either. The way that we challenge the Westphalians is by first challenging the root of their argument, their version of history. We therefore have to challenge their idea of the Habsburgs and their version of the Thirty Years War, which states that the Habsburgs fought it to realise their ambitions of power on the European continent. As you might expect, anti-Westphalians dispute this line of thinking. Frederick V of the Palatinate challenged the Habsburgs and took the crown of Bohemia in 1619 because he understood that they were weak, not strong, so say the anti-Westphalians. The Reformation had fractured the inner workings of the Holy Roman Empire, and solutions to the problem, such as the 1555 Peace of Augsburg, represented mere plasters over what was, by 1618, a gaping wound. Granted, a case could be made for Ferdinand II getting too big for his boots and scaring the Bohemians into adopting a drastic solution instead of electing him as their king. Bohemia, deeply divided religiously, could not afford the kind of black or white religious policy which Ferdinand had been implementing in his home Austrian provinces, and they simply did not trust him to listen to their grievances over those of his Jesuit confessors, who preached to Ferdinand at least. Ideas of expansion and intolerance. Choosing to elect Frederick V as their king, Bohemians knew they were taking a risk, but initially it seemed as though Ferdinand was unable to stop them. At the same time as the Bohemians made their move, revolts erupted in Hungary as Bethlen Gabor of Transylvania led an army to the outskirts of Vienna, while Bohemia welcomed Frederick V with open arms and began to arm themselves. With the Evangelical Union, representing all Protestant German princes, ready to enter into the fray as well, and with Frederick V's families tied to the Dutch and English also providing a major concern, Ferdinand, as Holy Roman Emperor, had to act fast to save not just his familial position, but the actual independence of Vienna from marauding bands. In desperation, then, he turned to other German princes to do his bidding. The forgotten fact about the Thirty Years' War and Ferdinand II's behaviour within it is just how dependent he was on the other major players in the Holy Roman Empire for support. Maximilian of Bavaria comes to mind. He was that stalwart duke who would last the duration of the conflict. He was promised parts of Austria as payment in kind, as was John George, the Elector of Saxony. These were lands once owned by Ferdinand, and the fact that he was forced to sell them to save his position demonstrated the depths to which he had fallen. Ferdinand didn't even have an army of his own, but with Max of Bavaria and John George of Saxony paid off, he didn't necessarily need one. Though he'd had to sell the silverware in order to do it, Ferdinand survived those tense opening moments of the Thirty Years' War by the skin of his teeth. The Catholic League was formed under the fortunately very talented Count Tilly while the Evangelical Union was disarmed by diplomacy before it even took to the field. Frederick V's allies abandoned him one by one, and he eventually fled to The Hague with his ever-expanding family, never to genuinely bother Ferdinand again. With his departure, Ferdinand was again forced to accede to Maximilian's demands to more payment in kind, as Frederick's Palatinate was given as ransom to Bavaria, Many of Ferdinand's allies believed that his occupation was a fair price, since Frederick V had broken the constitution of the Holy Roman Empire and he had threatened the natural order of things too. But Ferdinand didn't have much control over his Bavarian vassal either way. If Ferdi had lamented the close shave, he was soon greeted with two problems that massively stunted his immediate prospects for making a quick peace. The Holy Roman Empire, not for the first time, was prevented from going about its business by a foreign potentate eager for opportunistic gains. Christian IV of Denmark was heavily invested in the Holy Roman Empire. Two of his sons were known to be next in line to inherit a series of bishoprics on the Danish border. When Christian saw the Habsburg victory, he worried both for Protestantism in the immediate confines of his German duchies and for what the Habsburgs would do if left to their own devices. Persuaded to act by those German princes he claimed suzerainty over, and propped up also by French and Dutch funds, Christian entered the war in 1625 as a mercenary of the slowly developing coalition bloc set against the Habsburgs. This distraction was defeated thanks mostly to the sudden and incredible appearance on the scene of Albrecht of Wallenstein, a Catholic Bohemian nobleman who offered to support his own army for free and push back the Danes in the name of Ferdinand. Wallenstein was successful enough to force a peace on Christian and be offered his own duchy as payment, but this irked Ferdinand's allies, mostly in Bavaria, and he was forced to dismiss Wallenstein in 1630, just as the Swedes were landing in Pomerania. Unable to raise the necessary army on his own, and doubtful of the loyalties of the Catholic League army under Count Tilly, Wallenstein's original offer in 1625 to raise an army off his own funds came as a mixed blessing for Ferdinand. The obvious boon was that he would be able to defeat his enemies and have control over the peace without any Bavarian or Saxon demands. The penalties for such a strategy meant that Ferdinand appeared to be a warlord determined to squash all opposition with his own personal army. This provoked Ferdinand's allies to call for Wallenstein's dismissal, especially when the victories started to pile up, since they didn't want the Bohemian noble to hoard the military power for himself. It also provoked external enemies, such as the Swedes, since Ferdinand's personal force made him seem even more powerful than he actually had any right to be. Wallenstein's power only existing because of his loyalty to his emperor and his own ambition for glory. The dismissal of Wallenstein then came at the worst possible time, and represented a complete personal defeat for Ferdinand, who couldn't placate his vassals enough to hold on to his generalissimo. If he wanted to hand the holy reins on to his son, Ferdinand II understood, Wallenstein would have to go. The Swedish invasion then brought the Thirty Years' War into its more recognisable phase. From here it became a power struggle and a conflict, fuelled by dreams of expansionism, opportunism and plunder. France entered in, 1635, ostensibly to aid the struggling Swedes and Dutch, but more likely because Cardinal Richelieu recognised that if he wanted to effect change in the balance of power from Spanish to French, he had to place France on the front line. After initial military failures, some of them disastrous, the combined power of the French, Swedes and Dutch soon overcame the Habsburgs, who suffered much losses and devastation as their allies switched sides Bavaria, or their home provinces rose in revolt. Spain was picked apart by revolts in Catalonia and Portugal, both of which were initiated by the French policy. In 1637 Ferdinand II died, and his son Ferdinand III assumed control of the waning empire. Though his father had been too stubborn to listen to reason, and at times was pious to a near dangerous degree, think the Edict of Restitution, which Ferdinand II saw as his divinely ordained mission as a pious Catholic, Ferdinand III was not the same as his father, and his most pressing goal was the achievement of peace. The 1640s began with devastating losses for the Habsburgs, as they simply could not keep financial or military pace with France or Sweden. By now Germany resembled an aching wasteland, and had been run over so many times by armies that food and infrastructure were desperately wanting. Seeing this situation, Ferdinand III pushed for peace before his position in the hereditary lands collapsed. The Peace of Westphalia was the result. That was, of course, a massively sped-up summary of the Thirty Years' War. But see how easy it is to see the Thirty Years' War from another angle? What is clear in the minds of anti-Westphalians is the fair enough point that it is ludicrous to search for a single guiding issue that moulded the Thirty Years' War, and thus it is simply incorrect to chalk the continuation of the Thirty Years' War down to Habsburg aggrandizement. The war continued because foreign powers kept getting involved, It continued because foreign actors wanted to reduce the powers of the Habsburgs, not because the Habsburgs wanted to reduce the power of foreign actors. Certainly the Habsburgs weren't perfect, but they were also not seeking to inflict universalism on the Holy Roman Empire or infringe on the independence of any foreign power. War lasted so long because the different crowns and states appreciated that the Habsburgs were on the back foot, and that the longer the war lasted the more opportunities they would have for aggrandizement. The reason why I've just given you this alternative survey of the Thirty Years War is to prove a point. If the traditional narrative of the Habsburg aggression and expansionism is wrong, or at the very least questionable, does it not stand to reason also that the Peace of Westphalia was not the culmination of a war of freedom against the Habsburgs, and that it was not the final triumph over such a tyranny? Westphalians may say, fair enough, the Ferdinands weren't all bad, but the peace of Westphalia did achieve a reordering of Europe along more modern lines, sovereignty surpassed the old system and the balance of power replaced the old way of doing things. Well, anti-Westphalians would argue that the whole reason Westphalians want to talk about sovereignty at all is because they have bought into the anti-Habsburg rhetoric handed down through history and adopted by historians in the 18th and 19th centuries. For historians writing during a time of nationalist ideals, the Holy Roman Empire was a complex beast to understand. All the more so, because it appeared on the surface...
1: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side?
0: as though it had failed in the Thirty Years' War because of its own ambitions, and it ceased to exist in the centuries that followed because of its unnatural status. Because the Holy Roman Empire was such an unnatural and ambitious polity, Westphalians claim, the peace of Westphalia was required to end its curious status, and by its destruction usher in a new era of natural state sovereignty and independence. Such views are the result of two key ingredients, anti-Westphalians claim. The first come from French and Swedish propagandists, who spread the word in the 1640s peace negotiations that they were acting to free Germans and all of Europe from the suffocating ambitions of the Habsburgs. The second ingredient comes from the aforementioned historians of later nationalist eras, who took the word of the Franco-Swedish officials as truth and applied it to their own biased ideas of how oppressive and limiting the Holy Roman Empire must have been, since no real nation-states existed within it, and a huge conglomerate of states existed instead. Historians have been mostly drip-fed this view of the past thanks to these events, anti-Westphalians claim, which go a long way towards demonstrating how true that phrase is about the winners writing history. By failing to question the formula which gave the traditional narrative of the Thirty Years War and then the Peace of Westphalia, generations of historians have failed to notice in their turn that the Peace of Westphalia now means something very different to what it did mean in 1648. This is because, having accepted the anti habsburg view of affairs, we have come to attribute what happened in Europe since 1648 as the natural intended results of the Peace of Westphalia without actually looking at what was agreed to at all. This ignorance hasn't been helped by the repeated parroting of the view that sovereignty, the balance of power and state freedoms were qualities that the anti habsburg coalition fought for and that the results of their success was the Peace of Westphalia. Yet, I'm about to drop something pretty darn shocking on you, something which may make you sit up and take notice, and something which may make you feel uncomfortable about ever accepting any accepted truths from history again. It's perhaps the most shocking revelation of this entire series, so here it is. Sovereignty was never mentioned in the Peace of Westphalia. The balance of power was never mentioned either. Nor was independence, nor the diplomatic freedom of states. The emperor's prerogatives aren't alluded to, and neither is the papacy's. Moreover, while delegates from several countries attended the Congress, the treaties that it produced were not a pan-European charter, or a solution which created a peace for Europe. The Peace of Westphalia proper was an agreement between only three parties, it consists of two treaties, signed on the 24th of October 1648. One was the Treaty of Munster, signed between the Roman Empire and the King of France, and the other was the Treaty of Osnabrück, between the Roman Empire and the Swedes. This is not, I really have to emphasise, the observations of anti-Westphalians who have sought to interpret the language of the Peace of Westphalia in a certain way, It is historical fact, incredible as it is. The very foundations of sovereignty, and everything else that went along with the Peace of Westphalia, which seemed to suggest its irredefining defining importance, are made of sand. Why, then, if this is the case, have we been so bombarded with the idea of 1648 holding such a unique importance in history? Why is the Peace of Westphalia upheld alongside Vienna and Versailles, if there's nothing near the level of significance actually there. Why? Well, the anti-Westphalians will tell you why. We've already seen how important it is to imagine that there may be more to the story of the Thirty Years' War than simple Habsburg aggrandizement. If we couple this with the fact that deeply opinionated historians wrote surveys of the period in the years that followed, and that they tended to adopt the Franco-Swedish version of events as the truth because it fit into their idea of what the Thirty Years' War was and what the Peace of Westphalia represented, then we can see how the facts may become obscured along the way. Because the Holy Roman Empire did not gel with the nationalistic insistence on the nation-state as the purest and best form of statehood, any narrative written about a polity as complex as the Holy Roman Empire was always going to be somewhat biased in his execution, and somewhat triumphant about its fall. It may be subtle tricks in the way the history is told, but even if the idea is repeatedly put forward that the eventual Habsburg loss in the Thirty Years' War was a natural one, or that the roman Empire could not possibly survive amidst a continent adopting nationalistic policies, then before long we have a body of history, overwhelmingly talking from one point of view. It is a point of view which, if you listen to the July Crisis Project, will be somewhat familiar to you guys. It's that old chestnut, the narrative of the inevitable Habsburg decline. Just like this narrative flummoxed First World War era writers for many decades, because they rarely took the time to consider whether maybe just maybe there was more to the Habsburg austro hungarian story than Konrad von Hötzendorf repeatedly insisting that Austria must crush Serbia. Historians never tried until relatively recently to investigate why Konrad was so desperate for Serbia to be crushed. They were content to assume that it formed part of the way aggressive and desperate states operated in the 1914 era. They never considered that Habsburg state rulers realized that they were on the decline, or that Habsburg rivals saw this decline as inevitable, and therefore any action taken against Vienna was justified, whatever form it took. Asking whether it was fair to disinhibit oneself from restraint just because your neighbour is on a downward spiral was a question historians rarely took the time to ask, and thus they missed the point on where Austria-Hungary was coming from. Similarly, to bring us back, by taking at their word the French and Swedish expansionists eager to take advantage of the Habsburg weakness by chipping off bits of the Holy Roman Empire for themselves, or by failing to realise that the narrative so long accepted by historians had been handed down and coloured by a series of biased and self-interested individuals aware of the Franco-Swedish propaganda, and determined to prove the truth in a certain ideology, that being nationalism, historians have made a critical error, which the anti-Westphalians have been attempting to point out ever since this debate began. Battling against the traditional view of the Peace of Westphalia as the era-defining peace treaty of the modern age is about as hard as convincing people that Germany wasn't solely responsible for the First World War but both are exercises in revisionist history just the same. As with both cases, the traditional view is so ingrained on the historical record that it can seem near blasphemous to argue against it. Anti-Westphalians insist that the truth behind the Peace of Westphalia has only been obscured by the force of historians repeatedly leveling weighted but scantily researched opinion pieces in the direction of Westphalia. The problem is, because these historians are only parroting the accepted truths of the day without questioning them, they add to the perception that the traditional view is too insurmountable to be false. No figure more added to the falsification of the peace of Westphalia, the anti-Westphalians claim, than Mr. Leo Groves in 1948. It was Leo Grose, writing on the 300th anniversary of the treaties, that reimagined the Peace of Westphalia in a modern, post-war sense, and seemingly confirmed its status as an all-important peace, without adding any significant developments in research or insights into the actual Peace of Westphalia itself. All Leo Grose did, anti-Westphalians maintain, was repeat the old, traditional views about why the Peace of Westphalia is such an important peace treaty for modern Europe, and how much human history owes to it. The problem was he parroted the old view so convincingly that historians of the period have come to cite Leo Gros as a Westphalian scholar, when in fact he was a scholar of international relations. Leo Gros anti-Westphalians point out, had never written anything about history before the 20th century, until the 300th anniversary the Peace of Westphalia came along. Aside from the research he evidently did for his famous article, he knows no more about pre-20th century history than my granny, yet his views and interpretations of the Peace of Westphalia have been taken as literal fact. This cannot be blamed wholly on Groves himself, since it's not like he completely invites all of the world's historians to take his word as law. At one point in his 1948 article, he even states that "...the actual terms of the settlement would hardly suffice to account for the outstanding place attributed to it in the evolution of international relations. In order to find a more adequate explanation, it would seem appropriate to search not so much in the text of the treaties themselves, as in their implications, in the broad conceptions on which they rest and the developments to which they provided impetus." In other words, I can't find evidence for my thesis, so rather than look at the dry-as-dust primary sources on the Peace of Westphalia, I'm going to instead trace history from 1648 and interpret what happened since that date as the actual intended consequences of the Peace. Scholars of international relations, just as much as historians of the period, assumed that Groves had been dealing with facts. However, to a somewhat unsettling degree, People believed in the hype of Grose's work and never sought to question whether the tenets and values which Grose put forward as the nucleus and defining qualities of the Peace of Westphalia may have been nothing more than his opinions. Further revelations become apparent if we dig still deeper into what the Peace of Westphalia was all about. One example is the Dutch. Despite all I've said about the treaties of Osnabrück and Munster in October 1648, Never mentioning sovereignty or the balance of power, and throwing a bit of a spanner in the works in the process for how we view history and the Peace of Westphalia, at least we have the independence of the Dutch Republic to point to as a significant event which began at the Peace of Westphalia, right? Well actually, no we don't, and the reason why we don't is as simple as it is incredible. By the time the French and Swedes were signing their treaties in Osnabrück and Munster in October. The Dutch delegates had long since gone home, and had been home since May. You see, while historians often list off the Dutch independence as another event we should be thankful to the Peace of Westphalia for, the Spanish-Dutch negotiations which brokered Dutch independence after 80 years of war were not part of the actual peace treaties that we should be recognising as the Peace of Westphalia. This sounds really technical and pedantic. But what it comes down to above all is a difference in date. In January 1648, the Peace of Münster, so not the Treaty of Münster, was signed between Spain and the Dutch, whereas it wasn't until October 1648 that the other members of the Triple Alliance made their peace. You might be wondering, why does this matter? Well, the Dutch didn't consider themselves Part of the Peace of Westphalia because in their minds the Peace of Westphalia didn't apply to them. Because according to Dutch negotiators, they were actually separate from the main conflict between the Franco-Swedes and the Holy Roman Empire. What does this mean? Well, we often try to lump conflicts together, don't we? It seems nice and tidy when long interconnected wars end at the same time because that ties history up into a neat bundle and allows us to move into the next tidy era with everything resolved from the last one. But the simple fact is, history isn't tidy. No greater example of historical untidiness exists than in the Peace of Westphalia. Thanks to centuries of mistaken interpretations and perhaps a bit of wishful thinking, we've been led to believe that the 80 Years' War between the Dutch and Spanish, as well as the wider conflict between the Roman Emperor and France and Sweden, ended at the same time. But in reality, while these conflicts were certainly connected in some senses, they were not at all the same. While the Spanish and Austrian Habsburgs regularly shared resources and sometimes soldiers, they did not share conflicts, with the notable exception of France. The Swedes were at war with the Hellurone Empire, and the Dutch were at war with Spain. The Dutch would have been foolish to involve themselves in the Thirty Years' War with the Ferdinands, when they already had their hands well full with Spain and could hope to gain little from such a conflict, while the Holy Roman Empire hardly wanted to provoke one of their best trading partners, especially when it would mean much of North Germany's microstates would be pressured almost immediately to leave the Emperor's orbit. Now that's not to say that the Imperials didn't lend soldiers to the Spanish from time to time and vice versa, but we take a massive leap in the wrong historical direction, If we claim that the Dutch and the Emperor were at war. At no point during the Thirty Years' War, at least as far as my extensive research has uncovered, were the Dutch and the Emperor actually at war. Thus, Dutch delegates were tucked up in bed dreaming of peaceful trade and a solution to the curious English problem, while the French and Swedish were arguing over semantics with the Emperor, The Dutch never attended the Peace of Westphalia proper in October 1648. But because the treaties of Osnabrück and Munster were signed in the same year, and perhaps even because historians can get confused between the Peace of Munster, which the Dutch and Spanish signed, and the Treaty of Munster, which the French and Emperor signed, which were ten months apart from each other, there has often been a great deal of confusion surrounding the Peace of Westphalia itself and most historians tend to just lump them all in together. The Dutch, to put it bluntly, never signed the Peace of Westphalia, because the Peace of Westphalia didn't apply to them. In spite of the existence of the Triple Alliance, the three parties were never committed to all-out war with the Habsburgs. As we've established, only the French were in that sorry state of affairs. As far as Ferdinand III was concerned, the Dutch were their own entity, and he was happy to let affairs continue as they had. Feelings matched by his father Ferdinand II. If the Dutch had been concerned at all about the final peace of Westphalia, then they would have sent delegates or involved themselves in the negotiations. Yet the only mention of the Dutch relationship with the Holy Roman Emperor comes in a single article of the Spanish-Dutch peace in January, wherein it states that, The continuation and observation of the neutrality, friendship and good neighbourhood between the Holy Roman Empire and the Dutch are declared to be the intended state of affairs going forward. So insignificant and, well, pointless really was such a statement that the imperial diet in the Holy Roman Empire didn't even bother looking into this matter until 1654, whereupon they sent a declaration, which echoed this declaration to The Hague, and the Dutch didn't even bother to send a reply to it. Nobody was too fussed, in other words, because nobody would question the clearly obvious fact. The Dutch were far too well-established and far too important to the economic stability of Europe to ever vanish from its map, or to ever need permission from the Holy Roman Empire to exist. I'm conscious we're running out of time, and for the sake of fairness, I wanted to give both the Westphalians and the Anti-Westphalians an equal-ish amount of argument space, so I feel it's time to introduce the Anti-Westphalians' as answer to Leo grows. I present to you a Mr. Andreas Osiander, whose 2001 article, Sovereignty, International Relations and the Westphalian Myth, has served as our explosive guide for this episode. Check the article out if you ever get a chance, because, explosive though it is in its revelations, it is also quite readable. As if summarising the anti-Westphalian viewpoint, Osiander noted that, The prevalence of the Westphalian myth in international relations is the result of 19th and 20th century historians adopting a certain standard account of 1648, influenced by ideas that can be traced to anti-Habsburg propaganda, of the Thirty Years' War. In international relations, this account has been further distorted through the probable intermediation of Leo Gros, Though he was not himself a historical expert, his commentary on the settlement nevertheless gained near-canonical acceptance. Osiander's rebuke of Leo Gros and the very clear appeals he makes within his article to look at the source material rather than listen to a revered historian really struck me. His article does become a bit denser near the end, as he examines the incredibly underrated judicial system of the Holy Roman Empire as a way to kind of underline how little we know about the empire as a whole. Historians have for so long bashed the HRE without really looking into it. As Osiander said, the Holy Roman Empire didn't make sense to the nationalist historians of the 19th and 20th centuries, surrounded as they were by nation-states and it can still be very difficult for us to understand the HRE nowadays too. Yet at the same time we owe it to ourselves to consider the possibility that the German states within the Hellerman Empire were perfectly happy to be part of their curious enterprise of history, and that they enjoyed the rights and trappings it bestowed upon them. They didn't need the Peace of Westphalia to receive their sovereignty, Osiander explains, because they had already enjoyed such sovereignty within the Hallyarone Empire's constitution. If they weren't sovereign before the Peace of Westphalia, then what were they? Osiander points out they certainly weren't under the thumb of any emperor, the likes of whom, during the tenure of the Thirty Years' War, had been forced to bribe those interested in participating with large plots of land or duchies that never belonged to them, as his already diminishing power base fell apart. They also were by no means prevented from acting independently or stunted diplomatically while they were part of the Holy Roman Empire. North German princes have been making independent trade deals with the Dutch and the Danes and the Swedes for centuries. You can't tell me that in the 8 centuries or so of its existence, by 1648, that no German states acted without the Emperor's OK. Not even Napoleon Bonaparte could restrain his vassals diplomatically. What makes us think that the Holy Roman Emperor could, especially when his empire was so divided and dynamic as it had become, by the end of the Thirty Years' War? Osiander will make a return in our concluding episode, as will Leo Groz, as they fight it out one-on-one after us holding them back, so to speak, for the last two episodes. Now that you guys know what both sides think, now that you understand where the Westphalians and anti-Westphalians are coming from and on what ground they stand, perhaps you'd like to take part in the debate. What do you think? Is Westphalia overrated? If you like your mini-series in groups of three, then join me next time in any case as we seek to answer the question once and for all. I've been Zach Twomley, and this has been the latest shocking installment of WDF Asks. Thanks for listening. No, we can do better than that. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you soon.